Welcome everyone to the Gov Navigator Show, a government-focused program that won't make you seasick. We're the Gov Navigators. I'm Robert Shea. And I'm Adam Hughes. We hope to enlighten and enliven your week with news and insightful, entertaining guests, all on the topic of government management. Enjoy today's episode of Gov Navigators, brought to you by the creative geniuses behind the award-winning podcast, FedHeads. Welcome to another episode of the Gov Navigator Show. I'm Robert Shea. And I'm Adam Hughes. Well, we are well into the new year. We would have had a shutdown. We were close to another shutdown. We were. But I think clo- I think closer than last time, unfortunately. But they got it done. Uh, actually, they didn't get it done. They, they, they asked for an extension. They limped over the not even close to finish line. So in sustained Speaker Johnson's weird two-tier CR. Have you heard any explanation that makes any sense about why that that is helpful politically, legislatively? Don't understand why that's a thing. I'm still licking my wounds from when I first heard about it and said, that'll never happen. That's so (laughs) stupid. (laughs) To go back and see if Charles Cooper said that it would happen. He probably Uh, did. (laughs) It reminds me, you know what the one thing you should never say in Washington, D.C.? That'll never happen. That'll never happen. You know what? Nothing will never happen in Washington, D.C., as far as I can tell. So, yeah, so the CR, the the dual CR in one legislative package extends the current levels until the beginning of March. Uh, So bought a little more time. And, you know, the clock on sludgedaily.com has been updated. Are people checking sludge daily? Like as nervously as we hoped? I Well, now they've got 42 days, 14 hours, 16 minutes, and 42, 41 seconds until the CR expires. So maybe not so much now. But when every time I checked last week and it was two days, one day, it was it was nerve-wracking watching it tick down. What else happened this week? Well, the Supreme Court heard arguments in a what could become a pivotal case in U.S. history on Wednesday. And this this case, if for those of you who have not followed, involves a, a fisherman of all folks who is protesting the government's decision to make him pay to have government monitors on his fishing vessel to make sure there's not overfishing, to collect data. And if you've read some of the articles about it, he actually thinks monitors are good. He likes that they're on the boat and he says they collect data that helps him. He just doesn't want to have to pay for it. So he's taken the federal government to court and it's reached the Supreme Court. And the main issue with this case is the ability of federal agencies to interpret and enforce law through regulatory and administrative actions. So basically, the government said the law requires these monitors to be on boats. And then later they said, oh, and by the way, we think you should pay for it to fishermen and fisher ladies. The reach of the government's ability to interpret congressional intent is is what's at play. And it's potentially could unravel the ability of the executive branch to regulate anything. So you're exaggerating. <laughs> Can he do good or would? On the one hand, you're exaggerating. On the other, it's hard to exaggerate the impact that this decision would have. Precedent being debated is whether agencies should have deference to interpret laws where the laws don't provide enough specifics. And in this case, who's going to pay for these monitors on 
boats. Who's going to pay for food inspectors? But paying is just one facet of what's interpreted in the regulations that implement laws. And so it's just hard to imagine the impact that this would have and how much harder it would be to get stuff done in Washington as a result. It, yep. It's and it, And if you read the tea leaves or if you read the people reading the tea leaves, it's hard to tell where they're going to fall. Looks like Roberts and uh, Amy Comey Barrett are the two who are going to make the final call. Yeah. And, and to your point, because it is in front of the Supreme Court, it also depends on how they approach the decision. Is it a narrow decision just about being charged by the government? Is it more broad about the ability of the executive branch and regulatory agencies to interpret on their own? All of this goes back to a 1984 case, Chevron versus National Resources Defense Council. Shout out to NRDC, my do-gooder friends over there. Uh, that's sort of the was the the standard for allowing deference to agencies to be able to interpret these things. And th- this could potentially overturn it. The extent to which it overturns it, to, to your point, Robert, I think, will impact how far reaching the decision is. Like we needed another thing to stress about. To worry about. Yeah. So look forward to that this fall. Yeah. We'll keep you updated. Robert, we have a thrilling guest with us today. Our good friend Chris Raleigh is on the show. He is the chief data officer, not at GSA. He used to be the chief data officer at GSA. Now he's at the Conference of State Bank Supervisors. So there was a there was some conflict in your introduction. Really exciting state bank supervisor and data officer. But I, I think state state bank supervisors can party. That's what I think. I don't know. Is that right? It yeah. is. Uh, it Chris is, is going to tell us. It is true. It is, is that true. right, it is Chris? Exciting. It is an exciting, diverse group when you get to work with all fifty states in in a field of of financial regulation and in my world of of data management to support that area. Um, I think they are just as exciting as IT people. Well, um, so you look, can take that for whatever that's worth. It's great for you to be with us. We try to lower expectations for, so that our guests can exceed them, but Adam's already screwed up and this is like her second podcast. Of year. I forgot. I didn't read the memo. I have an important question to start out with. I was spending a warm New Year's Eve with my brother and his wife in Lewisburg, West Virginia over the holidays, and we were looking for holiday movies to watch and tossed out it's a wonderful life my former bank supervisor sister-in-law shut that shit down immediately (laughs) and i just want you to discuss the community's feelings about the depiction of bank supervision in the movie it's a wonderful life you know i i think you know the the scenario of a run on a bank kind of repeated itself you know in real life recently with, with some of the things that are happening in the banking institution. I think some of those core concepts around banking is the same today as it was in the black and white TV era. Uh, it's just that we're doing them now in a very automated and real quick way. So instead of just walking into a bank and demanding all of your money out of the savings account, you can push a button on your phone and it's gone. And you know, that's one of those ways in which uh, I think the, the world has just evolved, but the concepts have remained the same. And the ability to gather your community and friends to scoop up trillions of dollars in $1 bills. Is that, that, that we're yeah, probably that, not there. Yeah, probably not there. Probably not there yet. Well, Chris, I appreciate that you know that that movie was made originally in black and white because yes. 
A lot of people don't know that because it's been colorized. I, pr- I prefer the black and white version. I don't think I've seen it in color. Some of the streaming options where you can get it are, are it's the color version, not the black and white version. I'm, I'm not sure the details of that. But Chris, tell us more about the Conference of State Bank Supervisors and how you ended up there. You've, you've had a, a pretty long career in and out of many different interesting places working with data. So tell us how you ended up where you are now. First of all, it was a, it was an intriguing organization that I didn't know very much about, even though I had worked at Treasury and, and there's some similarities there, but they've been around since 1902. And they're a national association that is supports the state system of, of state financial regulation and supervision. And in, in 2008, the SAFE Act propelled them more into the spotlight with the national mortgage licensing system, which allows them to do licensing in a lot of different areas in the financial world, which obviously produces a lot of data. And, and obviously, we want to make sure that we're properly collecting it, storing it, managing it, maximizing its use while also understanding its you know, privacy concerns. So a lot of those sort of data management functions, what I'm focused on. And kind of parallel to that, is, as you guys know, I, I finished up a board chair at the Data Foundation, which focuses a lot on open data and open government and maximizing the use of data for, for public good. So it's something I've been passionate about uh, for a long time. And and before that, in the federal government, you're right, I've, I've spent time on, on the Hill, on the Appropriations Committee at OMB for the permitting executive order during the Obama administration, Treasury, IRS, and then, you know, lastly, at GSA as a chief data officer there. I think just sort of this evolving role of chief data officer, I didn't I didn't graduate college and say, you know, I'm going to be a chief data officer someday. Like those things didn't exist. Yeah. Right? They, these functions were not there. It's like when I tell my daughters that the internet didn't exist when I was a kid and they cannot fathom that that a world could exist without the internet. You know, you dinosaurs roaming the world, all of those (laughs) things happening way back. It's all just history, right? Right. And and these things didn't exist. So so you still probably was a data analyst from the very beginning and did data integration projects, but it just sort of evolved. And I want to say like 10 years ago, when I was at when I was at Treasury, the role of this kind of role was starting to form, and it was more about quick wins and doing data integration. Like, can you build me an, an analytical dashboard that shows me X that doesn't take six months for people to yeah. build, right? And it just sort of evolved into this work is just sort of evolved with technology with the function over time. So yeah, I can't tell you like this is the map I took, and you know this was all a conscious effort. I have kind of just gone with the flow with my career and, and have headed towards work that I think would be interesting. And I think CSBS kind of creating this new data space is is very interesting. So the wise people in the Commission for Evidence-Based Policymaking saw the need for this important Ugh, position. Good Lord. Genius. They were geniuses. I... <laughs> How much money is he paying you to say this? You've got an interesting perspective, broad, a number of federal roles, now dealing with state governments and your role in the Data Foundation, which grapples with a lot of the policy needs. If you were king for a day, what would you do to drive better use of quality data across government? First conclusion is we're still trying to figure out what a chief data officer does and like what success of someone who's in that role is. It varies significantly, I think, across federal agencies and across even state and municipal CDOs and what they're focused on. But it's definitely improved and it's definitely maturing and coming together. I know the federal government has a CDO council now 
they're starting to, you know, streamline their focus areas and gain some commonalities across agencies, which I think is fantastic. But I think that lack of clarity, there's sort of been this hands-off approach from OMB on the federal side of really saying, here's what a chief data officer should do. Here's what they should focus on. They've relied on the Evidence Act to put like some teeth behind the CDO, but they haven't really put a lot of guidance behind it. And I think, you know, as I'm seeing this getting involved more in state government, I, I think there's this huge opportunity for state government and federal government to collaborate in functional areas as well. There's just no ecosystem or environment there uh, to help make that connection yet, at least, at least not that I've seen in a consistent way. But I do see the federal government maturing. I see state governments hiring more of these positions. It's just a matter of time before people see that connection. So, Chris, you know, maybe you want to give OMB a little time. You know, they they put out guidance for the 21st Century Idea Act almost five years after it passed. So they may be coming out with guidance for. They CDAs. could be. Yeah, they could yeah. be. Understand the approval process that occurs within OMB to get some guidance to come out like that. I also have a lot of budget officer friends who use the words unfunded mandate with me repeatedly <laughs> whenever I mention chief data officers. Any violins are going off all yeah. over these podcasts. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. What's going on with states and data, chief data officers? You know, I don't interact a lot with the state CDOs yet. I'm kind of on the periphery. With, with, you know, seeing them and noticing them become more involved in some of these larger conferences that involve CDOs. And I've had the opportunity to talk to some of them on the side or listen to some of them, some of them speak about their initiatives. I think I've recognized that, you know, a lot of this is anecdotal because I don't have the statistics on it, but the ones that I do see are typically in the governor's office or in the executive, the core executive function of a governor, governor's office, which I think is is different than you're seeing in most federal agencies where the CDO is in the CIO organization. So you're starting to see like this hiring of CDOs of maybe they're not just technical, but they're also like yeah. policy influencers and priority drivers, which I think will be a great mix when you start to bring some of these people in these positions together. Adam sort of convinced me late that this AI thing is going to persist, I guess. I guess. I mean, I think don't think it's a fad. You know, the, I, think, uh, I think it's going to stick around. One well, of the Chris, you and I, you and I did talk about Terminator. Yeah. Last time I saw you in person, we had a we had a sort of a if, is everything going to be okay? There are people out there that have not watched Terminator the original. You should go watch it because that could happen. <laughs> so wow, but we also try to be uplifting here too, Chris. We don't want to <laughs> just have everyone want to go. The good guys won. The good guys won. In the end. In the end. There's a lot of discussion about the application of AI in the fraud environment, well, on both sides. So perpetrating fraud will become easier and more difficult to combat, but AI provides tools that help you combat it. So are you seeing that in, in your community? My take on AI, which I'm not an AI expert here, uh, People who say they are AI experts concern me a little bit as well, right? That yeah. someone's like, I, I'm an AI expert. I, it, it is a very complicated subject that includes a lot of different areas. When I'm looking at the, the initial value proposition, you're like, what in the short term do you see as a value proposition of AI that can be rolled out very quickly? It is the language models that are producing text that can take something and a concept that you have and produce text. 
and I'm, I'm thinking specifically for compliance related documentation. If you are required to, you know, check these 12 boxes with documentation that you have, you're going to speed that up with AI. You're going to be able to scale that and repeat any compliance writing, especially if there are areas out there that have very detailed requirements and examples of what a successful document looks like. Uh, we talked about this in terms of the ECQs right? With the government, the executive yeah. core qualifications. Here's exactly what you need to write in order to produce a really good ECQ. There's tons of examples of them on the internet. Great. I'll take my resume, I'll load it into a language model, and I'll point it in that direction, and I'll tell it to write out my ECQs, and I'm done. The, on the flip side of that will be the reading, right? So then the recipient of this compliance document will take that same file, load it up into an, their own language model to determine if or not they actually meet those qualifications yeah. as their compliance reading. Pretty soon you're gonna realize that you just have machines talking to each other about all of this information that may or may not be super useful. But that is th those are the places that I see the initial is just being able to make compliance writing faster and compliance reading faster. That is the low hanging fruit that I think people can jump on relatively quickly. And is that um, when you start getting when you start getting into like some of these other areas of of regulation or or supervision or like any type of auditing capability, those are all there too. I think they're just a little less mature than some of this core compliance writing stuff. We've heard from some guests on this podcast talking about how this is going to be the year of the use case for AI. So saying here, you know, in this instance of supervision and auditing, here's the tool you can use for that specific thing, whether it's bank auditing or financial sheet auditing or whatever it is, right? And developing I, you know, those so that they're more mature, because I think you're right yeah. that they're just not up to that point yet. I think this is the year where people have a second computer sitting on their desk and they're actually using it to do work, but not necessarily reporting it, like copy, pasting, <laughs> changing a few things around and then calling it their own. And I, I don't say that to be like a pessimist. People using it on the side as we kind of figure out uh, some of the policies and guidelines around it is just naturally going to happen. I hope we catch up to that very quickly because that can be dangerous with, with the type of information people are plugging into this on their, their side computer or their secondary computer. That can be very risky and dangerous. I don't advise any of your listeners to actually do it, but I think people will. So are you saying that are your, I mean, maybe we're a little bit too much in the weeds, but that's kind of what we do here at Gov Navigators. So we've seen conflicting guidance from agencies, not conflicting necessarily to their to the same audience, but you know, one agency says, we want you to try it out and use these tools. And another agency says, no, 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 don't you dare try to use this. Where do you fall on that? And what are you doing at the conference? Do you allow employees to, to try it and utilize it? Or are they uh, doing it on their like home laptop? I actually noticed the National Science Foundation put out regulations today or guidance that required you to disclose the extent to which you leveraged AI in research or in a proposal response. So I, oh, really? I think that's the, the middle ground, like, yes, do it. Don't do it. Yeah. Just tell us whether you're doing tell it. Tell us you did it. Yeah. Tell us, tell us you did it. I think that's a good, a good, a good balance. We're in the educational mode, learning about it, talking about it, providing some guidance around its use. And, you know, I, I think a lot of organizations are going to sit, are going to be in that space. I know the executive order on AI and the federal government required the identification of artificial intelligence officers. And you're seeing a lot of that as another duty is assigned, which I think is is tough. You know, I know my budget officer friends will say this was not a funded position, <laughs> but in, in the reality of it is as much attention as this is getting and as much focus as we're going to have on over the next few years, 
I do think we need to take a look at the management structure of agencies and what these positions should look like and what skills they should have. I, a lot of them, I think, are falling, again, anecdotally, falling in IT and technology, either the CIO, the CDO, the CTO, when a lot of the things we just talked about are, you know, really general counsel guidance almost around its use and how you structure it. And I'm surprised yeah. that, you know, more general counsel organizations aren't adopting and becoming the AI officer, at least initially, while we figure some mm. of this stuff out. I think a lot of organizations are going to struggle with the use, don't use, uh, you know, kind of mentality. And I do think making sure if you use it, you document that you used it is, is very important. I think it's the training part of it that's that's the challenging part. If you use it, whatever you're putting in there becomes part of that training model. And, and that is the part that, you know, there's a lot of issues, but that's one that's going to be a big challenge to address. So tell me what's on your agenda as CDO of the state banking supervisors. What, um, what, what do you hope to accomplish in the next year or beyond? So, you know, we're really focused on optimizing data management. So I'm going back to the core of like data architecture and what is all of the data elements we're collecting? Are they all named out? Do we have classification for all of them? Do we know which ones? Uh, you know, fall under privacy restrictions? How does that information flow in across the information? And are we maximizing the use of that data? That core foundational capability is necessary for any organization that's looking to maximize its use while ensuring protection, which is really like the goal here, right? Is me working with the privacy officer and the CISO around protecting data, but also with our analytics policies and product teams to maximize the use of data. I'm sort of balancing, you know, both of those perspectives at the same time. And just having that complete inventory and understanding and use of it is key to that. But it, it's, it touches on the things we've been talking about, too, about AI, right? Where yeah. in, a, in a year or two, are you going to be able to take an AI model and put it just inside your firewall, right? So you're, yeah. whatever organization you're at, you or someone else, your employees can utilize it. Nothing goes outside to the internet, but it takes that functionality so that you can jumpstart your efficiency and operations internally. Like, I don't know, yeah. but I'm assuming that's kind of where we're probably going. Now, we, we've had a, several conversations around that with different different people of, you know, taking all of, just a basic functionality of taking all of your transactional data and then taking all of your, enterprise architecture policy documents, and then being able to ask question of, oh, if we change this system to do X, Y, and Z, how does that impact the rest of the architecture within our technology environment? And just being able to have AI do that assessment instead yep. of 20 humans trying to figure it out across all of these systems, that is a clear benefit. But it, it requires very granular details yep. on your systems and your technology. <clears throat> very accurate information also because right otherwise it's going to just make stuff up or go wrong right and and to your point that's why focusing on the fundamentals and having those foundational things in place i think that's i've certainly started to see that much more ai is here it can do cool stuff you better have your data ready to go right yeah because if you don't it you're not gonna be able to take advantage of it right i think that is when you start talking about functionality between the federal government and states that do very similar things, Mm. how they share a very high quality data set and then can leverage, just like you said, putting a containerized, you know, language model on top of a very fixed data set for very fixed purpose that all entities can share. I mean, we're talking years away from that in my mind, you know, technology wise days probably, but like functionality wise, policy wise, 
you know, sharing agreement wise years away from like just having shared data sets that you're using to, you know, make decisions. I mean, I think that's the goal that is, you know, reducing burden and data collection burden on different entities. Going back a little bit to the data foundation and the financial data transparency act is, is, you know, one of those initiatives to consolidate on data standards across federal regulators that I think is another initiative to kind of like, hey, let's standardize our data across these organizations so that we can really maximize its use, reduce burden to collect data, and still do a really good job of, of, of meeting our mission. It's great to hear you applying, you know, you've done in so many positions in one that affects the states, but that you're also, you haven't stopped having the conversation at the federal level. We could go on and on, we're out of time, but been been fantastic being with you and, and learning what you're doing and get a little piece of your wisdom. Always great catching up. I thought Adam was going to wear sunglasses or something to, you know, keep it even lighter, but he, he just went with the sweatshirt today. I did. <laughs> he just brought his, just brought his old bald head to the party. <laughs> Chris, thanks for being on. It's really great to chat with you. Thank you. Thank you. So he didn't really validate my concerns or my sister-in-law's concerns about it's a wonderful life. That, Maybe he's too new to the community to really grasp the cultural significance of that. True. He did know that the original was released in black and white and they've redone it poorly in color. I mean, yeah, I, like that's it's funny. I've never seen it in color. So, yeah. Well, I wouldn't ever, I wouldn't recommend it. Or it was it dark. And, yeah. Or, or, I mean, it's very faint, the color. It's not vibrant. Don't think Wizard of Oz. <laughs> What's going on this week? Well, the Coleridge Initiative has a webinar on January 22nd. It's about data for evidence building and highly recommend you check that out. AFSIA also has their DC monthly luncheon. It's on DISA's priorities for 24, the Defense Information Systems Agency, for those of you not in the know on government acronyms. And that's on the 25th, it looks like. I thought it was supposed to be the 22nd, but it looks like it's been moved to the 25th. What about you? So the formerly formerly known as the Association of Government Accountants, AGA, is hosting a Wake Up Wednesday webinar on finding the data to drive improved performance, tips for government practitioners. I know, I know it's, you've already dozed. I know that, you've I already mean, dozed. That, does that mean it's early? Yeah, it is. Okay. So they're going to- It's gonna at 8 a.m. They're going to get you out of bed with some thrilling yeah. content. That's right. Actually, it is thrilling content. It's also relevant to what the Coleridge Initiative is doing, paving the way for helping federal, state, local agencies integrate different data sources to unlock the insights they contain so you can better manage and improve performance. So wake up Wednesday with AGA. I think I'm going to recommend they hire you as (laughs) their voiceover. Thank you. Enjoy the week. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Gov Navigator Show, brought to you by Gov Navigators. We sure hope you enjoyed it and learned something in the process. And didn't get seasick. Right, of course. If you want to know more about us and what we're up to, please follow us on social media or visit govnavigators.com. Ahoy! Oh, jeez.